0: There's a bear in there and
1: a chair as well. There are people with games and stories to tell. Open wide, come and
2: If you grew up in Australia, Play School on the ABC, the national broadcaster, would almost certainly have been part of your childhood. It's been going strong now for over 50 years, the second longest running TV show in the world after the British kids' show Blue Peter.
3: A grumpy face. And a sad face. But I have a happy face. Hello, I'm Karen. Lots of different faces with different feelings. That's
2: Karen Pang, one of Play School's longest serving presenters. She's been on the show for more than 18 years. In the clip we just played, she's doing a series with her fellow presenters on feelings. And it's appropriate, really, because we spoke to Karen for this episode about her own feelings, or more accurately, her mental health.
3: I stay because it's one of the best jobs ever. Uh, It's a job that permits you and gives you license to be a child and I guess it's like especially when you start to have like children around you there is no way that you can walk with them without having some kind of childness and joy. It also makes my life you know lighter and it also kind of you know just makes me remember that um, it's okay and it can be a lot of fun this life. (laughs)
2: Karen's life isn't always light. It can get pretty dark. Karen has bipolar, and she says if it wasn't for her faith in God, she probably wouldn't be here anymore. Perhaps you've heard it before. Religion is bad for your mental health. It triggers feelings of guilt, right? Self-loathing, bigotry. But actually, there are many ways in which the opposite is true. Karen's life is testament to that. There's also a growing body of research, authoritative, real-life peer-reviewed research that reports a significant benefit to well-being if you're religious. That's right. You are more healthy if you are religious. I'm John Dixon and this is Underceptions. <laughs> Underceptions is brought to you by Three Views on Christianity and Science, a new book from Zondervan Academic. Every week at Underceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. Before we go any further, just a warning that today we're talking about mental health and suicide. If you're struggling at the moment, you can get help by calling Lifeline in Australia on 13 In the UK, the Samaritans on 116 123. And in the US, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 1800 273 8255. Be safe. God bless.
3: Hello. Hi, it's Kaylee. Thank you.
2: That's producer Kaylee who sat down with Karen for a heart-to-heart. Hello. Hi,
3: Kaylee. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes. No yeah, so uh, I went to Charles Sturt University um, in 1994. Um and it was really great because I was just, you know, doing stuff that I really liked in terms of was communications. And um but by the second year I felt something just it was like it got heavier and heavier. And um and I just found myself crying at a drop of, you know, the hat and I didn't know what was going on. It was like as if all joy All like, you know, kind of fun or sort of, you know, experiences of these things were just taken away. And I feel like it was just an empty, dry landscape.
2: Karen says she was diagnosed with depression and given some antidepressant medication. It's probably worth just stopping here to define what we're talking about in this episode when we say mental health. The Mayo Clinic in the US, a leader in the field, puts it this way.
3: Mental illness, or mental health disorders, refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, thinking, and behaviour.
2: That's Producer Kayleigh.
3: Examples of mental illness include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviours. Many people have mental health concerns from time to time, But a mental health concern becomes a mental illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function.
2: OK, so back to Karen, who says she began to walk out of the shadows of her university days depression and walked straight into NIDA, the National Institute for Dramatic Arts, a prestigious centre that trains some of Australia's best performers. There, Karen had to confront some really difficult things – opening herself up to criticism, uh, digging deep into her emotions to play tricky characters and, well, just being in a high-pressure environment where people are adversarial with lots of people competing to be the centre of attention. She emerged after three stormy years there and began
3: her first job on play school. I could feel the shadow just, you yeah, behind me. Um... So, yeah, I went into work, but then I hit, like, about 25, 20, yeah, 25, and things got really weird. Um, I started to just, you know, things just really deteriorated, Um, and I started to lose track of, you know, um, time, and I started to just... It was like I couldn't sleep, Um, and I I could hear, like, stuff in my ears, like some noises and stuff like that, and it was just... um, and I just felt like I was, the adrenaline was constantly just overflowing and um, and I just couldn't get rid of it. You know, I was moving all the time because I couldn't keep still. I'd stay up drawing like these pictures continuously and um, it really started to get out of control. Um, and there was points, got to a point where, you know, I just, just felt like if I tried to, I don't know, step up, you know, on the third floor and jump, would I die? Like, Or can I just try it and see what happens? Like, Things were stu- r- like really starting to blur reality and what was going on in my head. In the end, I went into hospital and they found out that I had bipolar. So that was my first hit of what a
4: serious high looked like. And it took quite a while for me to come back down. Bipolar is a type of depression. Um, and it is really a, um, it's a chemical imbalance.
2: That's Lynn Worsley, a clinical psychologist based in Sydney.
4: When it comes to bipolar disorder, you have an extreme, an extreme between um, someone who's hypomanic, so they hyper in their, in their behaviours and their thoughts and they're fast acting and fast thinking, and then their extreme depths of depression. And those, those swings can be so extreme that people don't, they almost like seem like they're two different people.
2: When Karen was admitted to hospital and told she had bipolar, she ended up staying for almost three months.
4: For me,
3: when I, I'm on a high, what happens is I bounce straight into a low, like a bipolar depression. And it's slower, it's harder, uh, it's darker and longer. Uh, it takes, like, generally, you know, for me, it took about, you know, six to eight weeks before I could even start to, you know, think about or be in a place to um, accept sort of, you know, okay, how are we going to do this? The clar- to have that even small clarity of going, okay, you know, um, so what are we going to do? Um, and actually accept help and also to be able to even want help. And that's that six to eight weeks that you're, like, in this kind of severe depression. Mm -hmm. What are you doing in that time? It's really hard because a lot of people don't talk about this. And at first I didn't really talk about it. Strangely enough, um, as a Christian I thought I couldn't talk about it and other Christians didn't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. So I was, like, you know, in literally a constant state of suicidal... um, you know, not just tendencies or thoughts. I was in the thick of it. So that's why I was in hospital most of the time, in more kind of lockdown, you know, um, places where, uh, you know, more than, it's not hospital, it's basically lockdown. And also I was actually hurting myself very badly. That's what's happening in that phase. And it's like a cloud, Um, a really, you know, sort of um, deep fog, Yeah. yeah.
2: Those suffering with bipolar are 17 times more likely to attempt suicide than the general population. See the show notes for the details. One in four people with bipolar will attempt suicide. And Karen's right, this hasn't been a topic the church is super comfortable talking about. In the Bible, there are six or seven suicides reported through the Old and New Testaments. The two best known are Saul in the Old Testament and Judas in the New. King Saul, who reigned in the 11th or 10th century BC, ended his own life to avoid dishonor and suffering at the hands of his enemies, the Philistines. In the New Testament, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, commits suicide after handing Jesus over to the authorities. There are two quite different accounts of his death, you may know, uh, one in the Gospel of Matthew and the other in the Book of Acts. Check out the bonus content from last season's Bible Mistakes episode, where I speak with Craig Blomberg about whether these accounts are contradictory. Still, however Judas died, it's clear he took his own life. Augustine of Hippo, also known as Saint Augustine, writing in the 5th century, addressed the ethics of suicide in some detail. A theologian and philosopher, Augustine wrote in his book The City of God that suicide violated God's commandment against killing and also the command to love one's neighbour as oneself. You can't love yourself if you want to kill yourself, the argument goes. Augustine actually goes a bit further than that and says that suicide is an attempt to completely escape suffering when the fact is Jesus himself has given us a model uh, of what it means to patiently endure suffering. It is clearly monstrous to kill oneself, Augustine wrote. The later church continued to condemn the taking of your own life. Some even argued that it is an inherently unforgivable sin because in the nature of the case, there's no opportunity to repent of that sin. The result, sadly, is that various church councils through history declared that anyone who ends their own life can't have a Christian burial. The modern church has modified its view a bit, thank God. The Catholic church, for example, still holds that suicide is a grave sin, but also says that psychological impairment like depression can so cloud a person's moral judgment that it actually makes them less morally responsible. The Catholic Catechism which is the official Catholic curriculum reads, we should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. Protestants, like myself, uh, don't believe in praying for the dead, but most of us share the same sentiment about the possibility of God's grace toward those who have taken their own life. The church's teaching on suicide has been mixed through history. But there's more to say. Christian teaching on the immense value of life seems to have had a measurable impact in
1: saving lives. Our speculation is that, you know, that that belief that suicide's wrong, um, reinforced by, um, you know, often powerful and regular teachings on the, the value of life, may in fact be the the principal mechanisms uh, by which uh, weekly religious service attendance uh, protects against suicide.
2: That's Tyler Vanderweelen the Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard University's School of Public Health. Tyler is the Director of Harvard's Human Flourishing Program, which has done some fascinating research over the last few years. We spoke to him for a much longer discussion about human flourishing in general, so stay tuned for an upcoming episode on that. For now, though, it's worth pondering how on earth regular church involvement is protective against suicide. A study I think you were involved with found that um, amongst American women, women who attend church, are five times less likely to suicide. How can that
1: be? Yeah. So, um, again, that's that's what our uh, estimate from our study suggested about fivefold um, less likely to commit suicide over the 50, roughly 15 years of, of follow up in, in that study. Um, and, and, others have found similar estimates, I would say, um, with regard to weekly religious service attendance, most of the estimates are in the range of kind of threefold to, to sixfold protective, um, effects, which, which again, is, is really, um, uh, substantial. We, we know of, um, you know, some factors which cause suicide that have such large effects, but in terms of protective factors, it, it really is one of, if not the, um, strongest. So when we were,
2: Okay, just a few more details about these remarkable statistics. Tyler and his colleagues at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health published this study in 2016, the one that found that regular participation in a religious service like church offers five-fold protection against suicide. But then in the middle of last year, they published another study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Psychiatry, that went a little further. Tyler and his colleagues found that people who attend religious services at least once a week were significantly less likely to die from deaths of despair.
1: Yeah, so deaths of despair is a term coined by uh, Angus Deaton and Anne Case to refer to the phenomena where um, we've been observing, at least in the United States, increasing deaths uh, due to uh, suicide, um, uh, alcohol poisoning, and, and, and drug overdoses. And what we found was that um, those who attended religious services regularly were at considerably reduced risk for these deaths of despair. Um, Amongst women in the study, uh, those attending regularly had about a, a 66% reduction in, in these deaths of despair. And um, with the men in the study, the effect was somewhat smaller, but still very meaningful. It was about a 33% reduction um, in, in the likelihood of deaths of despair over um, about 20-year period. So considerable reduction, considerable protection for those attending religious services frequently. So we were curious to try to understand um, why this was so. And that is, from an empirical and scientific perspective, a more difficult question. And, um, you know, suicide, thankfully, is still a a relatively rare event, Um, but it makes it more difficult to, to study. But in the analyses we did, um, that, that tried to understand what the mechanisms might be. We had speculated that sort of lower depression rates and less um, alcohol abuse and greater social support might all be um, important mechanisms for leading to the uh, much lower uh, suicide rates. And we knew from you know, prior work that uh, um, religious service attendance, uh you know, had um, beneficial effects on... Um, uh, social support on reducing depression, on on reducing um, alcohol abuse, and these things are associated with suicide. And we found that you know some of the effect was um, explained by these pathways, but much much less than we had um, anticipated. Uh, I mean, with that dramatic fivefold effect, quantitatively it was really a tiny portion that seemed to be explained by these other mechanisms, and so. It led us to speculate that maybe that one of the central mechanisms—and this is more of a speculation than something we have definitive data on at present—but that maybe one of the central mechanisms was simply the belief that suicide was wrong. Um, and many of these uh, religious communities uh, do have fairly strong prohibitions against uh, suicide, and and also you know, profound teachings on the on the value of life, of life being a, you know, a gift um, from from God, and. And, and sort of the negative consequences of, of suicide on the community uh, as, uh, as, as well.
2: It's not just deaths of despair that are reduced by religious service attendance. Tyler found that religious service attendance is associated with better overall mental health.
1: I would say there's, there's very strong evidence for a protective effect of religious service attendance uh, and depression. Um, those who... Attend uh, regularly um, seem to be at about a thirty percent reduced risk of depression over time, and, and likewise, those who are attending regularly who are depressed um, are more likely to to recover from um, from depression. Um, there's also evidence that uh, religious service attendance contributes to various aspects of of psychological well being. Um, tends to increase levels. Of happiness and and life satisfaction um, gives rise to a greater sense of, of purpose um, in life. So that would be another contribution of religious service attendance to mental health. Yeah, I would say the um, evidence to date is that it uh, religious service attendance has um, both a preventive effect, but also uh, an effect on healing and recovery and. There's some evidence, I wouldn't say it's yet definitive, but some evidence that perhaps the effect on, on recovery is even more substantial than it is on, on prevention. Um, that um, you know, while religion may not prevent things from going wrong, may not prevent suffering, it allows one to find meaning in the, in the midst of, of suffering and, and difficulties, and the resources which religious communities provide uh, might help as a pathway towards healing. Um, some evidence of this for depression, um, I would say even stronger evidence for this from uh, recovery from, from, from drug abuse or, or alcohol abuse, where again, one sees protective effects um, but the, the magnitude of the effects on recovery seem to be even um, larger. Religious communities really have an important and powerful role to play in healing and in recovery.
2: The prevailing idea for many is that religion is bad for you. But the evidence just doesn't support that. It strongly points in the other direction. Tyler van is a leader in his field. He's not just heading up the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard. He is a methodologist and statistician. He has an added interest in making sure his research holds up. So we asked him, what about reverse causation? Isn't it possible that only healthy people end up going to church in the first place?
1: The only way to properly address this is to collect data repeatedly over time both on an individual's health status and on an individual's religious service attendance and then you can begin to look at do the changes in religious service attendance precede those in the changes in health um, or is the reverse the case Um, so we we essentially control for early levels of health um, when looking at the potential effects of religious service attendance on subsequent health and well-being and this this helps rule out that possibility of reverse causation
2: tyler's team isn't the only group of experts that have found these positive connections between religion and mental health the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Health provides a comprehensive meta-analysis of all published studies on the association between religious involvement and medical and mental health. The findings are extraordinary.
3: Well-being.
2: 78% of more than 300 studies report a positive association between religiosity and well-being. Hope. 73% of 40 studies report a positive association between religiosity and hope. Optimism. 81% of 32 studies report a positive association between religiosity and optimism.
3: Meaning and purpose.
2: 93% of 45 studies report a positive association between religiosity and one's sense of purpose and meaning.
3: Social support.
2: of 74 studies report a positive association between religiosity and one's sense of social support. Depression. 61% of 413 studies report lower rates of depression or faster recovery from depression in religious individuals. Suicide. 75% of 141 studies Report that religiosity is associated with less suicidal ideation, fewer suicide attempts, or fewer completed suicides.
4: Because all of us do have ups and downs, so you can imagine all of us just having a normal wavy line that's between two points on a spectrum. And those
2: That's Lynn Worsley again, back to talking about bipolar.
4: Um, Someone who has Um, different types of bipolar, but some people would have an an extreme that would go to a point of them making rash decisions, spending money too quickly, um, spending money inadvertently without even thinking it through, uh, going and and taking out a new business um, without even thinking about it or understanding the consequences, making massive decisions, proposing to someone, um, going somewhere on a long road trip without thinking of putting petrol in the car and you know just none of those it's almost like an impulsive behavior Um, and then to be caught out by the extreme of having depression in absolutely low mood um, a couple of days later so that's cyclical change some people can have the hypomanic behavior for you know weeks on end and then they crash some people might have it for you know 10 hours and then they crash Um, and then they cycle back again so it's particular medication that is used for bipolar and a particular type of treatment, um, psychological treatment, to help people to manage their highs and their lows and training their brains to to try and regulate their emotions because it's such an extreme of that.
3: It's turbulent, you know, because uh, people kind of think that it's only just the yay, but it's also the other side where you swing right to the other side and it's this ex- extreme sort of like, you know, Kind of, yeah, emotional, you know, roller coaster, yeah. and then you fall into this, the trap of being literally identified, and you yourself, you, you know, that is your identity. You know, I am bipolar, I have mental illness, and um, it's a very, it's a very tight place, and very, you know, uh, in terms of, you're very lonely in that space. Um, because you start to get defensive, you start to get, like, you know, you, that no one understands you or no one sort of, like, knows how, what it's like.
2: Tyler VanderWeele's research is all about public health. He deals in the statistics that help us improve the health of entire communities. And, yes, at that macro level, religion is good for us. And it's not just on the grand scale that we see this. It's personal. We're so grateful to Karen Pang for sharing her story with us. But after the break, it gets a little more personal for me. My darling wife, Buff, has battled anxiety and depression for years. And when we come back, she shares something of her journey and how faith helps and doesn't. This episode of Underceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Three Views on Christianity and Science. Whether science and faith can play nicely together in our modern setting is a favourite topic of ours here at Underceptions. We've devoted plenty of episodes to it already, and we have plans for more. And actually, one of our previous guests is a key contributor to this new book. Alistair McGrath argues that though the natural sciences and theology function differently, they can and should inform each other. But there are other viewpoints on this topic too. Michael Ruse argues that science and religion operate independently, keep out of each other's way. They seek answers to different questions by different means. And then Bruce L. Gordon argues that science, philosophy and theology all contribute to our understanding of reality. The question of Christianity's relationship with science isn't going away. It's one of the most frequent questions we get here at Underceptions, and I reckon this book is going to help you understand the different views. You can get the book on Amazon right now, and there's a link in our show notes, or just head to zondervan.com. Right now, 2.2 billion people can't access water that is safe to drink. It's an extraordinary figure. And Anglican Aid, the overseas relief agency of the Anglican Church, is working hard to change that. These are people I deeply trust. And their Waterworks campaign is funding local organisations in 17 countries to provide wells, Boreholes, rainwater tanks, microflush toilets, and hygiene education, all of which decreases waterborne diseases and raises living standards exponentially. And you can help make this happen in more places. Head to waterworks.org.au to learn more about the Waterworks campaign and please donate today. You can also find a link in the show notes.
0: When I was 20, I had a brain hemorrhage and needed surgery, and that was fairly dramatic. And then when I was 30, I had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy when I was three months pregnant.
2: That's my wife, Buff. She and I sat down with ABC's Rachel Conn during Mental Health Week a few years ago. Buff opens up about grief, loss and clinical depression. The full interview, by the way, is linked in our show notes.
0: So that was also fairly sort of call the family to say goodbye kind of moment. Oh goodness, um, uh, ectopic pregnancies don't usually result in that. But y- did you say you almost bled to death? Yeah, but it was all internal. It was in my stomach, so I had no. They didn't know what it was after the brain surgery. I, which was in my frontal lobe, which in hindsight would say maybe was the start of some mental health problems. But I was never diagnosed and then I had, when we had the children, I had what was, they didn't diagnose it as quickly as they might this time, but I was described as having a a definite detachment from the children and um, which now people would jump on and say, oh, postnatal depression or something. But back then it wasn't quite so um, clear and then we moved house and so it all just gets lost. Um, But after the ectopic, I definitely went downhill into a kind of depression? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And just crying all the time and one you know, almost wishing I hadn't survived and and just feeling I, I was just all over the place. And that was when I first started on the on the track of being diagnosed and medicated and dealing with all that sort of beginning of that journey. So you're
3: still on medication?
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> So that, that, um, that faith experience, if you can put it that way, uh, that you had when you were there in the surgery, almost near death, uh, has not sustained you? Or, I, I mean, that is to say faith hasn't fixed you? <laughs> oh, no. I was saying this to John the other day. I said, it's so funny how it, it really fixes me every day, but it doesn't fix me. It's a curious... It's a, a Attention there. I don't always understand myself. I don't know if you have any insights there. No,
2: faith doesn't fix. Definitely not. Christianity doesn't offer a fix to every ailment. In fact, the New Testament speaks of our groaning in this world. It goes on to say that the world itself is groaning. The better way of thinking about all of this is that biblical faith sustains us in a real and profound way. It tells us there's more, there's another perspective that can anchor our lives when we feel at sea. And if you talked to any of Buff's friends, they'd say her faith sustains her in remarkable ways. In the midst of the worst bouts of depression, when she doesn't want to get out of bed, she has this amazing ability almost to laugh at herself, to detach from her feelings, not in a negative way, but by reminding herself that she's not the sum of her emotions. She is objectively loved by me and the kids, uh, but also by the creator. And so we end up praying through it all. We almost never pray nowadays for healing. We've just decided we're going to walk with a bit of a limp. Calmly, peacefully, often joyfully, with a limp. Faith isn't a fix. It's a steady ground to walk on, even when you're walking through the darkness.
3: I think it was hard because as a Christian, a lot of people were, you know, very much like those guys who were just unhelpful friends, you know. And I think it is because I don't blame them for you know. They want to try and their heart is in the right place. But you cannot assume, you cannot fix, and you cannot advise what you don't know. I didn't know how to travel, you know, through the bipolar and the diagnosis. So I was listening to all the people around me. And I was like, going, oh, okay, I'll do this. Oh, I'm not praying enough. Oh, I'll read my Bible more. Um... And it didn't help because it was just this flurry of, like, you know, people and everything trying to help me, trying to heal me, prayer over me, and, like, you know, I've got a demon inside me. Like, it just was, like, and I look back on it, it was just really actually quite amusing now um, because it was like a – I have to say it was like a circus, you know, um, and I was, you know, the uh, you know, the show, like, you know, um, but I'm – I feel glad that I got out of that and not let that harm me.
4: And I don't know if it's um, necessarily a prejudice. I think people don't know what to do. So you know, as much as we can say it's a stigma, it also comes from a place of, of lack of knowledge. So the more knowledge we have, the more likely we're going to be able to lean in.
2: What would you say to, um, you know, like a Christian listener? Um, who thinks that they can just you know pray and read the Bible and they'll be fine if they're struggling with anxiety or depression.
4: Unfortunately when you say to someone we're just going to pray there's these spirits away or we're going to read the Bible over you that you're telling that person that they're evil. You're telling that person that um, there is something in them that they might be possessed and that for somebody who's having problems with their thinking just adds to the the problems and actually perpetuates the situation. But sometimes
2: it's the person experiencing, say, anxiety, dramatic anxiety, who thinks themselves that, you know, it's a spiritual problem. If I go to a psychologist, you know, I'm letting the Lord down. Because after all, didn't he say in Philippians, be anxious about nothing? And here I am anxious.
4: Mm. Yeah, I hear that all the time.
1: (laughs) Do
3: you find yourself still praying to be healed of your bipolar? No. Why? Because I've done so many times. (laughs) And those many times I've like, you know, I've demanded that he do that. And there's a few times where he says no, I'm not gonna do it. (laughs) Um, And as my life has continued on, I realize my life is blessed. My life is good because i know i have a good story and um and i'm glad he isn't you know taking it away so maybe another misconception then about bipolar in particular is is this middle ground like you know we're sitting here drinking tea mm. where are you now um for me now it's i'm on in a time where i'm very stable and i've been stable for now um, two years.
0: Okay.
3: I mean, I still have my days. Mm. I, have, I feel quite stable and quite steadfast, you know, as the Bible would put, and quieter. I think quietness and stillness is the essential part of this experience. Um, because not only is it the opposite, you know, of bipolar... But it is the way that the Bible teaches us as, you know, as Christians, that is the best place. And also on your knees, because as he says, you know, bring me the brokenhearted and, you know, and those, yeah, those who are weak. And, and I think that for me, being on my knees has been the best place to be. Prayer, you know, also has been. Brought me to my niece to be able to live in this space.
2: There is strong evidence now of an association between attending religious services and happiness and life satisfaction. Those who attend religious services find a greater sense of meaning and purpose, they're more likely to have social supports, and they have stronger coping mechanisms.
0: And I think spiritually, like in a devotional sense, there's days where I have felt, if I'm particularly low, where I would just feel I have nothing to offer today. I just can't pray. I can't. I've got nothing. But somehow the um, that time of prayer, or of looking at the Bible, or of saying the prayers, they're a great help. And there's something that's
2: bigger. That's Buff talking about how we use the wonderful set prayers of the prayer book when we can't quite find our own words
0: the feeling the trouble with anxiety and depression is that it's so um you get emotional you get paranoid you get so, so low on yourself and so on and these words they lift your gaze higher and they're they're constants and they're so reassuring and I, I find it a what some would say is a ritual it or maybe the, the idea of discipline and self-discipline is outdated these days, but I find just as someone with cognitive behavioural therapy would put things in place just to help, I find for me that has really helped me to not be a slave to my feelings, but to be able to step outside and realign myself with things I know to be true
3: regardless of how I feel. Sometimes, you know, of course, I raged and I questioned and I hated, I was bitter, you know, and I was upset. And But the thing is, I know God says it's okay. I can take this. This is this okay. Just keep going. Can you imagine what your journey might be if you didn't have your faith? I don't think I'd be here. I I wouldn't be here. Even my, you know, husband says that my sister like you would not be here
2: if you're struggling right now you don't have to do it alone if you or someone you know needs help here are some excellent services ready to talk right now in australia go to lifeline.org.au In the U.S., suicidepreventionlifeline.org. In the U.K., go to samaritans.org. Have you got questions about this or other episodes? I'd love to hear them. You can tweet us at Undeceptions. Send us a regular email at questions at undeceptions.com. Or if you're brave, record your question for the show by heading to undeceptions.com and click record. While you're there, check out everything related to this episode and plenty of other bonus content. And if you feel like helping out the larger Underceptions project, please click the donate button, the really large donate button. We still haven't quite worked out how to cover all the costs, even of this podcast, let alone the wider writing and speaking associated with it. So your support means a lot to us. Your response last season was amazing. Thank you. Any amount is deeply appreciated. And if you like our show, check out With All Due Respect by Megan Powell-Datois and Michael Jensen. They talk about contentious issues without killing each other. They're part of the Eternity Podcast Network. Next episode, we're going for guilt. Yes, a whole episode on guilt. Is it morbid self-flagellation? Was Freud right that it's a kind of neurosis for which we need therapy? Many think so, but I'm going to try and convince you that guilt is good. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley, who not 30 seconds ago told me to play that with a straight bat. So there you go. Bat. <laughs> our theme song is by Bach, arranged by me and played by the fabulous Undeceptions band. Editing by Nathaniel Schumach. Good job, buddy. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Underceptions is part of the Eternity Podcast Network, an audio collection showcasing the seriously good news of faith today. Head to underceptions.com. You'll find show notes and lots of other stuff related to
4: our episodes.
1: Brought to you by the Eternity Podcast
4: Network.